0: Hi, this is Michael (laughs) Wade. I love that smile. And welcome back to the Asia Tech Podcast. We are joined today by Wally Wong, a founding partner at Scale Asia Ventures, SAV. I love the three initials, we'll get to that in a second too. Wally, thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you doing today?
1: Thank you, Michael, it's a great pleasure. I'm doing doing fantastic. It is
0: super great to have you here. Before we get into the central part of this conversation and dig deeply into what I think is gonna be some pretty interesting stuff, Why don't we get a little bit of your background for some context?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, So I I grew up in China. I was born and raised in in Beijing, and then I went to Tsinghua University, which is uh, MIT in in China. Yeah. Um, That was uh, a lot of fun. Uh, I mean, I was uh, really into research in machine learning and AI. Uh, doing a bunch of, we can we can dig, uh, talk more about that. I mean, it's great to see that recently the generative AI has been really hot. Oh my God, in yeah. In the world. It's uh, such a great uh, to see the, you know, back in 20, 2009, 2010, I was in the research lab doing a lot of that, you know, computer vision and natural language processing back in the days. And I moved to the, to the States to pursue my PhD at uh, NYU. Uh, in New York, uh, the Stern School of Business, studying uh, information systems. So I was doing uh, research and publication papers, but I decided Xamia is not my thing. So I moved it to startup world. So I've been in the venture business for almost a decade now. So initially, I was an operator, also doing some annual investments. And most recently, I've been doing full-time investing Uh, over the past four years.
0: I want to go back to your education, Mm -hmm. if you don't mind. You said 2009. (laughs) It feels like a lifetime ago to me. (laughs) I'm sure it does to you at some level as well. But what gets a kid Mm -hmm. interested Mm-hmm. in artificial intelligence and in machine learning I, I want to get to sort of generative technology in a second but what gets you interested at the beginning in that and doing research like was your mom and dad doing that kind of stuff like what got you interested
1: i mean being uh educated from china i mean everybody is really uh, good at math and physics so i was also uh, getting some you know quite of good at studying so i was uh Studying computer science at Tsinghua, so right. naturally top grade students will go, go to the U.S. to pursue a PhD. So I was perfectly on that track right. during my undergraduate study. So I've been doing, you know, uh, picking picking research labs back in, you know, at my sophomore year in Tsinghua. So there was uh, quite a few directions uh, within computer science that. I found uh, uh, data mining at the time it's called data mining or, you know, big data, data analytics yep. has been quite uh, exciting for me because I think it's very related to your business life or, or daily lives where we can use machine to automate a lot of things and also making predictions. So I found that very exciting, but there's also some other new technologies like 5G uh, or, uh, you know, the networks, uh, networking uh, technologies, et cetera. But I decided to dedicate more time in the, you know, in this research lab, which Right now, it's fascinating to see my prior advisor at Tsinghua. They were actually developing a open AI in in China, so Chinese version of open AI. Interesting, That's, uh, quite a big thing. I mean, with collaboration with Baidu and with all the top universities in China, so they're doing their own you know Chinese version of the open AI right now. Right. Uh, Uh, And then I also worked at Microsoft uh, Research in Asia, headquartered in in Beijing back then. And also uh, I was a visiting scholar at uh, Carnegie Mellon University for my uh, junior year. I also do some research at uh, CMU as well. So did you
0: live at CMU? It's around Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. I lived there for a summer. I was a research scholar back then. At least it was uh, the summertime. The I mean, living
0: in that part of the United States in the wintertime can just be brutal. I know my family's across oh, the state yeah. in Philadelphia, but
1: I just hate the winter. Yeah. I don't know about you, but although you're from
0: <laughs> Beijing, right? So you should be kind of used to cold.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. And uh, but I lived in New York for a few years. So yeah, you know the winter is also quite uh, quite cold compared to where I am right now in
0: Cincinnati. <laughs> I love your background. When somebody says to me, like I wasn't interested in academia. Or continuing, right? I'm just really curious, like, what drives you out of that? If you did it your whole life, you worked in a research lab, you're good at it. You were probably brought up in an environment where that was very prestigious, right? Where studying, learning, getting good at stuff was really prestigious. So what drove you out of that and then into operating? You know what I mean? Yeah, that's a
1: great uh, question. I think, you know, back in the days, I I see a lot of my other classmates, or schoolmates join like research lab at yeah. Microsoft or Google or uh, joining as an as assistant professor at uh, research universities in the world. I think a lot of the the works that we have done or will dedicate the next decades to do is mostly about you know post a fact to summarize or to try to generalize some knowledge from the from what has already happened. Yep. Uh, so that's the most. Important thing for at least from the business uh, school's perspective, a lot of the research has done really in that way. So, we are publishing papers talking about the summarizing all of the business phenomena and try to generate some uh, abstract knowledge from it. I think those are quite far from your day to day life, and yeah. especially witnessing the excitement in from the mobile internet world uh, era back in 20, uh, early 2010, uh, 2012 when, you know, uh, everything is booming. Twitter just uh, went public uh, around that time, you know, Facebook is just uh, still growing very fast. Uh, and we see Uber and all of the sharing economy just uh, taking off. Yeah. So a lot of things really happening in the cutting edge, the frontier is really done by the startups in Silicon Valley or elsewhere like in, in the world. So I found that's more, uh, you're really creating the the, the future Versus just uh, summarizing after the facts. So that's what I found. And so I want to, when I was still young, so I wanted to experience more of that, you know, more excitement. Uh, (laughs) It's still young. I love people's
0: perspective on age, right? Like how old am I? What do you think?
1: Uh, You are probably...
0: 50? Yeah 57 but I still feel young right so I don't think it's just interesting to hear like and how old are
1: you? Turning
0: 34. Right so I love to hear people in their 30s talk about when
1: I was young yeah because I think you'll
0: look back on this time actually in your 30s your mid to late 30s and think like this is probably going to be some of the most productive time of your life that's what it feels like to you but the reality is that as you get older you get more perspective and I think you just get better at everything that you do particularly someone like you are that is kind of research-based, knowledge-based, and database. you'll see as you get older, like this perspective widens and you'll just get so much better at stuff. Talk to me a little bit about the move from operating to investing. And yeah. I had heard, here's the thing I really want you to focus on, if you don't mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I had heard 10 years ago when I first started investing myself that the best investors were ex-operators and I didn't understand why. I Mm. really didn't. And I took for granted the fact that that actually wasn't true, but I was wrong. And I'm Mm. curious about your perspective on why you think ex-operators make the best investors.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm still a new newbie in the in the investing world, so I I cannot uh, not yet to characterize myself as. But
0: why do you think you're going to be good at it? You know, because you did make the move, yeah?
1: Definitely dive into that. So interestingly, talking back in 2014, when I first moved to Silicon Valley, yeah. I joined a Vicarbonator company uh, called Pebble. So at that time I was uh, into the VC, you know, ecosystem. I also wow. made some entry investments back then. And, uh, you know, I I feel that it's very hard for me to, to understand or to teach or educate or help the founders that I'm investing because yeah. you are just new to the field or you, you know, don't have much of a... Operating experience, so I feel that's really what I'm lacking. So I I, I dedicated uh, my f- initial, uh, I mean, uh, from 2014 to 2019, I dedicated this uh, five five years, five six years into operating role. I took uh, three different startups as a, uh, uh, two of them got acquired, and uh, I also have the the third one raise over 100 million. Before I launched my own cybersecurity startup in Asia in 2018, and yep. we quickly exited that in 2019. So I got some experience firsthand as a founder and as also as ex executives at companies that got acquired, right. seeing the whole journey of really incubating the idea to some really seeing the fruit of exiting the company. So through, only by going through the whole journey, You can understand why or how a company can be successful from day one. So that's where I I start to have more perspective when I'm seeing entrepreneurs from the very, very early on stage.
0: Do you think you lean on that experience now as an investor where you look and think, this is a great idea, it's a good team, but they haven't figured out yet these three things or whatever it is that I learned when I was hired at a startup, built a startup, exited a startup? You know what I mean? Because there's so much there. Yeah
1: exactly exactly you know that's how that your my, my operating experience uh taught me or gave me the privilege to really on the spot can tell or or can can feel yeah where where is missing because you know be a successful company has to be w- very well rounded so there's so many mistakes you can make and uh, you know I, personally i feel i, I mean every single companies that i work i take a lot of learn, learning And also essence from that, definitely helping me when I'm seeing the companies.
0: Can I make an equivalency between like scientific research and the research you're doing at Tsinghua and also at CMU and actually becoming an investor and just work with me on this and tell me where I'm wrong, right? Because I'm not always right. And even with just building, but as a researcher, you're almost encouraged to make mistakes, right? You're supposed to have a thesis. Then you're supposed to go out and test that thesis. And if you're lucky, actually, your thesis is wrong. Because it's through the wrongness that you learn all these little things. Then you go back and adjust that thesis and then come up with a better conclusion. Mm -hmm. And isn't that equivalent to the way you invest, right? You start with this big thesis. And I want to get into what your thesis is as well. But even when you're building a company, you're like, let's go do X. And then you start Mm -hmm. building. You're like, that's not working. But I'm used to things that aren't working. Let's go back and fix the thesis. And then we can fix the execution. Does that make sense as well?
1: exactly i know. i would say even even today around 80 percent of my time is regarding uh, research try to come up with a hypothesis and try to you know research and uh, figure out the points and to validate that and uh, to to apply that model into uh, the companies or the founders that i meet meeting with so it's very similar yeah to what you just describe describing.
0: you brought up open ai earlier it's something that's mm-hmm. super interesting to me before mm-hmm. we talk about investing Can you just talk to me a little bit about just like what you know, what I should know about open AI? And because there's a lot of talk about it today, right? What are the things that I should know about it? And then I want to get into how it drives the investment thesis as well. Is that okay?
1: I think just a quick summary of, I think, open AI, you can think about that as a, you know, a big brain that you can just uh, rely on and everybody can have access. Um, I mean, every developers can have access to use that brain. So it's an infrastructure play. It's like uh, the AWS in the AI world. It's basically providing a a huge brain and that brain can do a lot of things. So it's like they can do search, like a search engine of a more advanced search engine, more intelligent search engine. It can also do creative works, like generating graphs or sentences. That can do a lot of things. And the reason why it comes up with uh, such a brain and that is so exciting, so popular. I read the news that it's valued at $20 $20 billion as we speak, but I mean, the the, other savings are way higher and uh, we'll see uh, more coming up in that field. The reason is that, you know, basically the deep learning and also the generative models have really the machine uh, enough intelligence. So it, it really trains itself and uh, OpenAI just uh, burn a lot of money uh, feeding the machine with a lot of information as much as in you know, the whole internet. It's basically eating the whole internet and coming up with a better or more intelligent, better version of the internet that enables a lot of uh, more advanced capabilities so that's what i see
0: and are we like at the earliest stages of this i mean obviously people have been working on open ai for a while but Mm -hmm. implementing open ai to come up with end user products i feel like we're kind of at the earliest stages of this and is this part of your investment thesis as well thinking okay people have been working on this for a while but now yeah. it's actually turning into things that are useful. And yeah. to benefit from that as an investor, now I got to start investing in that stuff. Is that, is that what you're doing here?
1: Yeah, that's part of my, uh, my thesis. Uh, I would say, I mean, the application of AI into changing or redefining different industries or different vertical of applications. So for example, what we see right now, like, um, I actually invested in a company called Jasper.ai. They're building on top of OpenAI, so they're calling the OpenAI's brain, and then they build that. It's like a creative marketing content creation tool to enable every single marketers to just write whatever they want. And they are doing a fantastic job in commercialization of that AI technology into bringing that to the marketers around the world. Either. Small, medium-sized companies, or even larger enterprises, are using that solution. So that's one application that I'm investing into. There's so many other applications that are applying the AI to really uh, change that industry.
0: Now I want to back up and talk to me about this scale Asia ventures. What is yeah. the overall thesis here in the context of using some of this generative technology in AI? But I'm interested yeah. in this in one of the things that you've mentioned to me offline, and that is this idea of living outside of your home country is kind of like yeah. the rest of your life because I've done this for 30 years, right? Like I've, I left the United States when I was 20 something years old and now I've lived in Asia. So you and I basically crossed in the sky at some point, right? And it's hard sometimes to live in a yeah. foreign country for the rest of your life. And I'm curious like how that colors the way you invest, the type of people in whom you invest and yeah. just what that's all about as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. I briefly mentioned about my investment thesis. Yep. And as you see... A lot of that relates to, you know, we need to have a very high technology barrier or like a technology mode yep. When, yep. When, when you're not building the company. So I'm mean, investing primarily into those like uh, AI or software driven B2B companies and also the infrastructures behind it. And we can see over the... Really, the past two decades, a lot of the software companies, the founders are expats, like the Israeli immigrants or or European immigrants. Yep. A lot of great great AI researchers are from from Asia or from other parts of the world, and they are immigrants uh, to the U.S. Uh, the, the main market is still in the U.S., but they have a lot of the you know prior similar journey as we are first generation of immigrants. We want to be really good at what we are, and also collaborate with others with local talents. Yeah. Also think about globally a global market from day one. I mean that's my 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 mandate for for the fund is to invest in those expats and those expats generating a lot of great returns. I, I read the a, a few numbers like more than half of the public listed like software companies are funded or has at least one founder from expats, uh, expat founders. So, so here's my theory um, on this is that I think if yeah. you
0: grow up in country A yeah. and move to country B. Yeah. By definition, you have to start questioning all of the things that you have believed that were true mm-hmm. for the first part of your life. If you have an open mind at all, right? Because, yeah. you know, like you said, you grew up in Beijing. It's a very specific kind of lifestyle. Not only that, mm-hmm. but you're surrounded by a bunch of people that are very similar to you. You have conversations yeah. that are a little bit, not, not just you, but like all of us, right? In this little bit of a bubble. But then you move and yeah. you experience the world in a different way. And for a guy whose mind is open, because you couldn't be good at research unless your mind was open, yeah? You live in a different place and it's you and all the people in whom you're investing start thinking, okay, not only am I questioning me, but I'm questioning my view on the world and the way that the tools that I understand get used. What can I build that's now going to help me do this better? And I think expats have a unique view on this because they're automatically questioning themselves and their original environment. In a new place, does that make sense as well?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. So entrepreneurship is such a rare character in human life. So people, it usually comes as as you mentioned. I mean, expats usually struggles. At some point in during their life of yeah. really settling down, and uh, it's very hard for them to be settled. So they always think about breaking through their current uh, uh, environment or things like that and making new, you know, new friends or new networks, and also thinking about change. So I think that those type of characters really is uh, what is needed uh, as a founder. Plus, post pandemic, I see a lot of the you know unique advantage of those expats because they have they can leverage their own countries. You know, R&D, they're better engineers or cheaper engineers uh, overseas, and they can collaborate more openly. Yeah. Every different uh, parts of the world, uh, the, the different talent.
0: Can you talk to me a little bit about GPT-3? This idea of generative pre-trained <laughs> Transformer 3, I think, is so interesting, and I don't think a lot of people really understand it. And for mm-hmm. someone like I am, who builds mm-hmm. content, who does writing, who does, who's yeah. creative, I want to understand, first of all, what GPT-3 is. Maybe you can go through that. And then also tell me how it's going to change the way we create stuff in your mind and also in the minds of the entrepreneurs in which you're investing and even just the ones you're talking to.
1: So, yeah, I don't want to talk too much in the technical details, but I think you can think about that. The prior days of AI or of like um, a software is that we teach, we write codes and teach what uh, the machine can do yep. so it's more of a one-to-one direction we we tell what uh, the machine will help us to you know to do it and then they can do it fast and they can repeat it all the time yep. so that's the older version so basically the gpt3 or the basically the behind it's a deep neural network and also the generative adversary network which is really revolutionary in the past decade in the ai field is that instead of we teach the machine machine can actually teach itself. So that will create a whole new level of intelligence because we don't need to, to really tell every instructor, every single steps for the machines, but the machine can evolve itself. So that's how the basically the, the whole um, technology is behind it. And because of the world has accumulated so many, so much information over the past, you know, two, three decades of the digital, digital media and the internet, World. So if we can feed those informations and just give it to the machine, and the machine just uh, train itself and learning by itself, eventually, and it's so fast, it's coming up with you know GPT three or GPT four, right. and they're developing an open AI, developing a GPT four, three, five, uh, four, five, six, whatever. It's just keeping keep learning and keeping be, be more and more intelligent. At some point, it will be more intelligent than than human. Because we we are not really it's not bound bound uh, it's not a, a boundary so human human intelligence will not be a boundary because the machine can learn by itself but that's why we see I mean the the, the generated uh, content becomes more and more uh, better and better and um, um, yeah that, that that's where basically. How I explain this.
0: So work with me on this for a second. I've had this theory for most of my life that music is just math and science that people can dance to. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you why, right? Because it's super logical. You know, even if you're not a great musician, you can hear when a note's out of bounds, right? You can hear someone playing a guitar or playing the piano and your ear is like, oh, that's terrible. That note should Mm -hmm. not have been there, right? So it's Mm -hmm. naturally logical. And I've always Mm -hmm. contended that great scientists are probably great guitar players, right? Because they know how it works and they can learn how it works as well, right? Mm -hmm. What's the implication for, we can call it GPT-3. And like you said, it's going to go four, five, six. I don't really care. But this idea of generative trained transformer technology, in your mind, like what's the implication on art and music as Mm -hmm. well, if you think about that, right? In other words, if I can't tell if something is written by a human or if music, which I always feel like is kind of like math, right? In the sense that it's not created, it's discovered. Like a great musician takes the notes that exist and says, oh, I just found this melody that I love. Mm-hmm. It's a simplification, right? But what's the implication in your mind on like the creation of music and art through this GPT mechanism using OpenAI?
1: I haven't thought about this that deep. I mean, in terms of how this will change the the arts or the I mean, in general, the humans' perceptions of arts or whatsoever. Right. I feel, at least from what we see in the application side of the GPT-3, is that the machine is really good at you know generating the patterns, learning the pattern, and also generating yep. new patterns. And I think a lot of the arts, music, those are still there's many patterns, yeah, many logics as you t- I mean, as you mentioned behind it, so the machine can catch up it very quickly and just uh, generating something similar or even new patterns by itself. So I think it's very similar to humans' creation of this type
0: of art. I mean, if you think about Mm -hmm. the recent documentary, recent in the last year that came out on the Beatles, right? They show these guys with their team, basically like sitting in a room and just like kind of banging on the piano, playing the guitar and just thinking, does any of this work? Mm -hmm. And if the GPT-3 can do this at scale, like you said, faster, but also teach itself how to do it, it just feels to me like we're coming up to this era where like great music and great art can actually get created by the machine Because it can iterate a lot faster. Like if you think about how long it takes a great musician, the Rolling Stones sitting in a basement somewhere in France and just like banging stuff out and thinking, okay, I'm going to write Sympathy for the Devil. Machines should be able to do this at some point, yeah? Uh,
1: Of course, of course. Yeah, that's definitely the way to think about it. I think that's why people are excited about it. And also I think great artists, musicians, I mean, they have the talent and Basically, the talent is that they come up with some new variations, new variations. And actually the machine, you can actually get the machine to do those variations. That's my point, yeah. Very similar to what the human is thinking and producing. So that's why I think that's definitely something that uh, you can really uh,
0: expect. So you're sitting there in Silicon Valley, right? And you've made this decision. You're going to invest in these sort of enterprise software and artificial intelligence and all this GPT-related stuff. Mm Mm-hmm. Do you come up with your own ideas as well for the types of things in which you'd like to invest and then try to go out and find like the five entrepreneurs that are building it and then pick the best one? I'm obviously m- picking random numbers, but you know what I mean? As opposed to waiting for people to come to you?
1: Of course. Every VC firm claims or, or I'm, I'm also part of those like um, Silicon Valley VC firms that have a big research uh, driven or research driven met- methodology. Right. So we do a lot of the top down research ourselves. Yep. And we try to figure out what are the domains and want to spend time and trying to meet with the uh, companies in that domain um, as soon, as early as possible and compare with companies in that uh, sector. Yeah. So uh, part of the top down.
0: And are you investing early, middle, late in the development of these companies? Where's your sweet spot? What do you think is the best place to invest?
1: Yeah. So I do a smaller check in the uh, earlier stage, like seed stage, uh, series series seed to pre-A stage. I also invest in series A stage where, you know, the companies start to have some revenue validations from customers and also uh, maybe some repeatability in acquiring customers and getting their, expanding their contracts within the customers, etc. Yeah, So that's a sweet spot And investing around series A, series B run. But going beyond series B run, I also have a fun vehicle that we can invest, grow, to a later stage as well interesting yeah so it's trying to be through the whole uh, spectrum
0: are you surprised sometimes by some of the stuff that you're seeing do you know what i mean we're like even you can imagine like oh the, you could do this with OpenAI, you can do this and that and then somebody comes to you with something you're like oh my
1: gosh of course i i that's the beauty of you know why we are trying to also talking to as many new fields as well trying to learn educate ourselves as well there's always new uh, you know new sectors or new categories especially because i'm investing new industry verticals for example i have one portfolio company doing the uh, software for business aviation industry so we oh sell God. to private jet companies and operating operating companies as well as as uh, local airlines and government airlines those industries i'm not totally completely not familiar with i don't know what's what is needed or all the customers there, but they have so many know-hows. I learned a lot from the entrepreneurs.
0: But I mean, this is kind of cool, right? So if you could attach, and tell me again where I'm wrong here, but you could attach sensors to like a bunch of different planes, right? And just fly them and gather all this data and then feed that into like an open AI engine and try to determine even just the small nuanced ways to increase the efficiency of how a plane flies or even just the route that the plane flies or how to react in real time. Like even that alone is super cool no
1: yeah there's so many things you can do definitely so i would say i mean first off, this um the portfolios are not doing that advanced yet so yeah no i know i know talking, but i'm just thinking so like i can't stop thinking about the way this so could work go ahead i think yeah it's definitely something that uh, they can think about i think yeah i agree with you i think that's why it's so fascinating i think the open ai is actually be uh you get the water in, in your daily life in the future so everybody will consume it Every company will use it or try to leverage it to to embed that into their solutions. Um,
0: Do you think this changes the way that software gets written as well, right? I hear a lot about, you know, you read a lot about no code, low code and all this stuff, but if the machine can teach itself to learn, it should also be able to teach itself to code. You just feed in like Ruby on Rails, you feed in C-sharp, you feed in whatever
1: it is, it should be able to figure it out. Exactly. I think that will actually come very soon. I think maybe in the next five to ten years, uh, we will see the basically that the AI models to replace quite a bit, like especially the front end engineers, the languages that you just described. I mean, people will no longer learn need to learn about that because the machine can just reproduce uh, that code, those codes automatically. Yeah, that's for sure. But there's also you know in software uh, engineers, I mean, there's so much around how do you architect and how do you define the uh, product. So there will be still Positions for those engineers to, you know, just uh, doing those high level instructions and then letting the machine to actually writing the codes. And in fact, the, the machines can actually writing bug free and more beautiful <laughs> clothes and, and it's working 24 seven, no need to rest.
0: <laughs> so one of the things that Sam Altman spends time talking about is right. Just some of the. Fear is maybe the wrong word, but some of the potential downsides of OpenAI. Do you worry about this at all as well?
1: I would say that, uh, you know, the mission or the responsibility for OpenAI, that that company to take care of, uh, I mean, they can do the control. They can control what the model can produce and what's the limitations the the machine can get. I mean, what's the boundary? I mean, there's definitely a lot of research and a lot of work that's done around that in academia. And that's where the academia come in play. I mean, that's where the scholars and researchers, they do a lot of that and they tell the industry what policies or what things shall follow. I think that's definitely, there will be a, some chaos chaos during the process, but afterwards, I think definitely a lot of regulations will come in to just uh, define the boundaries. I, I, I wouldn't worry too much on that. No,
0: I wouldn't either. And to be fair, I'm kind of bullish on humans. Yeah. You know, in the in the long arc of human history, people are always complaining and fearing about, like, how new technology is going to ruin the human race. And at some level, <laughs> no, but they do, right? But at some level, I feel like humans yeah. are always figuring out, like, yeah, we can walk into the abyss or we can just live at the beach if we prefer. And I think most people prefer to live at the beach as opposed to walking into the abyss. Um, here's the one last thing that I want to leave you with. Like, I can't stop thinking about the potential of open AI now. And Mm -hmm. this idea of these generative technologies, like the more I talk to you, the more it makes me think. I mean, I was just the airplane idea just popped into my head when we were talking about this. And you're like, slow down, dude. We're not doing that yet.
1: I think that it's still at a very early stage. I think currently we're still seeing, just getting started, explosive of entrepreneurs getting into this field. And I think that, on the other hand, I feel there will be for sure will be some big companies in that those domains will just pick up OpenAI and embed that into their existing solution. For example, for example, chatbot, uh, or like um, even translating softwares or whatever, like um, marketer tools, whatever, they will just uh, embed, a lot of them will just embed this OpenAI to their existing offerings. I feel there is a time window for new companies, new startups to come in Uh, but there will be also some quite a bit of like uh, catch-ups at least from like a big companies like uh, microsoft or amazon or google they will really benefit a lot from this uh, revolutionary technology
0: i think so too but i think you said this earlier and i'll let you go when i'm done with this the open ai has the ability to be the aws of like so many things right because in the old days if i wanted to start my own company i had to build my own servers write my own all this kind of stuff that i had to do And today I just plug into it, right? I just hire an S3 and I'm just off to the races, right? And I think OpenAI is going to be similar. Someone's going to make a lot of money doing it, but also a whole bunch of new products are going to be enabled and a whole bunch of new services are going to be enabled because we get to use the collective brain of the entire universe. And that, I think, is going to be really powerful, no?
1: Exactly, exactly. And it's almost free. I mean, the pricing is amazing. (laughs) Is it? Yeah, exactly. If you're building that, uh, if you're building the application, so it's just... That's why why I think I make the analogy to AWS. Yes, it's really, really cheap. Everybody can just uh, log in, uh, create an account, open an, ad, and just building the, building the applications and it's just spending. Um, for example, like generating a thousand words will just cost you like twenty cents. Like a piece of like blog, a readable blog will only cost you like uh, ten cents, twenty cents to generate. And, uh, that's that's just uh, so cheap and. Uh, so, yeah, it's a quite an exciting field and an exciting time.
0: It is. I'm going to leave you with that. Wally Wong, a founding partner at Scalish Adventures. I cannot wait to have more conversations with you and with some of your portfolio companies. I really appreciate your time today.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Michael.